a headline from the Onion. Street evangelist saves 300 souls from enjoying the park. It goes on to read, San Francisco open-air preacher Brother Sam Hilson rescued more than 300 of God's children from appreciating a cloudless spring day at Golden Gate Park on Tuesday by informing them of their sins and the swift approach of Judgment Day. I like that. Street evangelist saves 300 souls from enjoying the park. Rescuing them from a lovely, cloudless spring day. Today we are going to talk about this third holy longing of the church, which is an instrumental part of our embedded DNA as a community breathed into life by God. We've talked about the first two. that are raison d'etre, according to Nathan, Arizona. He doesn't talk about this exactly, but he uses that expression. Is Worship. There were people who are learning the value of Christ for whom we were made and we exist to bring praise to Him and to honor Him in all our words and ways. We've talked about nurture, the second strand of our embedded purpose, that we would be a one-anothering community that is helping each other become more like the Savior. Worship, nurture, See, worship has to do primarily with God. Nurture has to do with each other. And then we also have a relationship with the world. And we're calling that witness. That we are a people who has been summoned to be a theater of God's generous and gracious activity in the world to depict to the world what it's like when some people get renovated or at least are in the process of being renovated by his good gifts to us. So we're going to talk about witness. And for a lot of you who've grown up in the South, when you think about witnessing, you think perhaps about being on a campus crusade trip and being forced to accost strangers at the beach and then feeling awful if you were scared to do that and then feeling awful if you weren't scared to do that and just in general feeling awful. And that's why I like the funny story about the 300 souls being rescued from enjoying a day at the park. It's interesting to me that the apostle here to Titus, he's writing to a minister to a bunch of people who live on an island called Crete, where the people were real Cretans, literally. And, And they weren't so good. And so one of the things that the apostle tells them, which is very interesting, he talks to Titus, and he says, here's what you ought to teach the people there. Which people? Old men, older women, younger men, slaves, masters, basically the gamut. All the different kinds of people who are like you, they just wear different shoes, drive different cars, that would be in the congregation. What are you to teach them? And one of the things that you realize very hurriedly is that the apostle tells them that they are a sent-out people in the sense that they have a relationship with the world. They are somebody who is bearing witness to a reality, but they're not necessarily and mostly sent away. Because all the advice he gives here is pretty humdrum, in a sense, 
If you've been around churches, you've heard all this stuff. But his reasoning, you might not think about all the time. The apostle tells older men, he says, teach older men to be, you know, temperate. Worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and endurance. Teach the older women to be reverent, not to be gossips, not to drink too much. So they can teach what is good. They can teach younger women how to be wives and how to be mothers, how to be women in this world. Teach younger men to be self-controlled. See, he's basically urging them to a kind of life that is, that's beautiful by comparison to the people around them who are being ruled by their own urges, by their own juices, by their own biological inner workings. And the reason for all of this is these. So that no one will malign the word of God. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they can say nothing bad about us. So that in every way you may make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. See, certainly the apostle himself, he was sent out. He was sent out around the known world. He could say, he could say I've preached this benevolent news of the way things really are. This gospel of the kingdom of God and God's benevolent Invasion of the earth with grace that is a glue that holds things together. He says, I've proclaimed that to every creature under heaven. He's been sent out to do it. But in most of the letters that he writes to churches, he's not sending them out. He's just telling them that one of the things you do in all the mundane, dreary, boring things that you do is you're carrying a name, a message, a reality with you. That's why I've said before and love this quotation about the word witness. To be a witness, says one cardinal in the Catholic Church, is not to stir people up or to promote a bunch of propaganda, but it is to be a living mystery. To live your life in such a way that it wouldn't make any sense if God didn't exist. If Christ were not in your life, your life would not make any sense. That people would puzzle why are they working so hard at that menial job? Why do they keep loving that rotten husband? Why do they put up with that kid who keeps disappointing them? Why do they keep giving away their money? It doesn't make any sense. Why does she submit to him? He's a doofus. Thank you, Barnes. That was the right response. I'm just going to commend responses when they're right. And the children often respond rightly. I don't know. Yeah, so good. Good work. The Apostle has a pretty profound sense of the kind of people we are doing the ordinary, mundane, trivial things that we do is the place, it's the address where you're going to speak the loudest about the reality of God in your life and God on the earth. It's pretty interesting to think about. And most of you who have lived on the earth for longer than some of you who just got here to Covenant College will realize that about, and I haven't, I haven't done the research on this, but about 93.4% of your life is going to be doing very humdrum things. Things that don't seem that dramatic. They don't seem that life-changing. They don't seem like they're changing the world. But the Apostle speaks about doing those things in a kind of way that recognizes the grace of God that has appeared and has said, I am a conduit that makes that grace 
those gifts, that benevolence, that affection known to other people. Lewis Smedes writes this in his biography. He was a professor at Fuller Seminary. And he talks about being a freshman at Calvin College. Yeah. (laughs) Dang Dutch. Just kidding. It's a joke. It's a wonderful place. Okay, so he was a freshman there. And he wrote this about his experience in an English composition class. To a god, the likes of whom I had never even heard about. This kid who grew up Christian. To a God, the likes of whom I'd never even heard about. This God, he describes, after being in his English class, liked elegant sentences and was offended by dangling modifiers. (laughs) Once you believe this, he said, where can you stop? He was in an English class and the English professor had convinced him that God cared about the way language was being used because that was the domain that the English teacher was working in. God cares about the sentences you form and about the way you use language. If this matters, then where do you stop? Pierce Pettis coined this in a song one time. He said, everything matters if anything matters at all. Everything matters, no matter how big, no matter how small. Christians can believe that. We don't say God doesn't care who wins the football game. God cares about all kinds of things. He might have reasons for winning and losing and how things are played as all the trite cliches go. But he cares about these things, so he recognizes this. If the maker of the universe admired words well put together, then how must he love sound thought well put together? And if he loves sound thinking, how must he love a Bach concerto or the latest Taylor Swift song? He, he didn't say that. That was long ago. But some of you don't know what Bach is. So. And if he loved the Bach concerto, then think of how he prized every human effort, every human effort to bring a foretaste, no matter how small, by his king, of his kingdom of justice and peace and happiness to the victimized people of the world. In short... I met the maker of the universe who loved the world that he made and was dedicated to its redemption. I found the joy of the Lord, but not at a prayer meeting, but in English composition 101. See, that's what's riveting about getting the vision of what the apostle's talking about here so that in every way you may make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive, that he knows that Jesus has, as I said in chapel on Wednesday, propped himself up against the ruin of the world. He has come to life in you. And he said, you, as you go out as little Christs, in every place where you work and play, you are the medium that carries the message about God's interest, his loyalty, his unflagging concern for the world. So he cares about the way you use language and he cares about the way you change a tire and he cares about the way you do the dishes and he cares about the way you hire and fire, the way you take a job and leave a job. He cares about the way you do your homework and the way you practice. He cares about all of it because all of it is an occasion for you to recognize his graciousness and for you to reflect it like a very bright beaming mirror to the world. You might have heard Corby saying, 
about small groups that we're aiming as a community to make what we believe about Jesus beautiful and believable. And of course, that's what the Apostle's talking about right here. Let the way you treat your husband, let the way you treat your children, let the way you respond to substances, to injustice, to people that don't appear like you thought they should, let all of that be in such a way that people will not malign the word of God. You know what happens. The second someone knows you're a Christian, this is what Steve Brown used to say, Steve Brown used to, say to us, do not ever tell anyone you're a pastor, but if they find out, do not let them be you know, alarmed. The second somebody finds out you're a Christian in whatever business you are, they're watching. You're under surveillance. Do you realize this? Maybe not in a creepy way, but they're watching and they're, they're eager to find a reason to malign the word of God. You're the Jesus that they meet. And so to make it your aim to say, look at this, I'm going out into the world. Jesus, how can you make yourself attractive through my manner, through my methods, through my words, through my actions, through my thoughtfulness today? How can I do this? The apostle says that this Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He gave himself for us to purify us, to make a people for his very own who are eager to do what is good. See, that's part of how the apostle can imagine that all the normal stuff you do is a huge part of where you're going to, to be a living depiction of Jesus in your life. Someone recently wrote a book that said, Did Jesus waste most of his life? It's a good question to ask. You know, we know Jesus lived about 33 years. We know that his public ministry lasted about three. So that means that, in a way, a lot of people think that for 30 years, he was just kind of wasting time and playing video games and stuff. Thank you that someone over here realized I was telling a joke. But no, no, okay. But for 30 years, was he wasting his life as he learned a carpenter's trade, as he was a child in his parents' household, as he went to synagogue, as he built things and fixed things, as he learned to pray? And we have to say, no. If the Son of God put on flesh and lived in, at an address with a vocation, then it is easy to imagine that your life is not wasted in all the different things that you've been placed to do. But what's important is to realize when you go out in the morning, or when you go home today, to think about this, that we are not our own. He purified us to make a people of His own. Now think about how much it would change the way you thought about your work. Because if I, if I ask for a... a poll right here, and I'm not asking, so don't raise your hand, because your employer might be here, and then they're going to not like you. If I ask you, how many of you think that you are being paid sufficiently at your job? I think no one would raise their hand. Everybody I know thinks they need to be paid more. Now, how many of you are treated by your boss the way you know that you should and deserve to be treated? You've been taught this your whole life every time you got an award for doing nothing. That's a joke. 
Most of us think we ought to be treated better. Most of us think we ought to be paid better. Most of us think our conditions ought to be better and that our work should be more fulfilling and it shouldn't certainly be so doggone aggravating. But what if you went to work in the morning and you had this thought? The main thing about me is not how much money I'm getting paid or what the actual work is or whether I'm fulfilled doing it. I belong to Jesus. He has purchased me. And what if he wants to spend me at Starbucks for eight bucks an hour? How will I let him spend my life there? What if I'm just a lowly mom? Do you see the air quotes? And I'm not producing anything of value in the world except for two or three or six or some of you 22 humans. You can look around and think, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything of worth. I'm just caring for these little people who suck life out. But what if God wants to spend your life that way, moms or dads? What if he wants to spend your life at that teaching job where you're not getting paid enough? What if he wants to spend your life at that hospital or at that school or in that dorm situation What a change of mindset it is when you go into a situation, instead of constantly thinking, there's got to be something better, there's got to be something more fulfilling for me, there's got to be some way for me to impose my marvelousness on the world in some way. How can I impose my gifts on the world? Can I gift the world with myself? What about Jesus, who loves the world, has placed you strategically He's exercised, as George Bush would say, strategery, or Will Farrell would say of George Bush, to place you where you are on that team, in that dorm, in that neighborhood, at that job, in that family, with that husband, with those children, with that spouse, so that you can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. That's, what if that's how he wants to spend your life? Boy, it reduces a lot of the questions you have. A lot of the angsty kind of lust for something different, for something more, for something around another corner, for something in another place. It keeps you, spares you from from that realizing when you constantly flit about that everywhere you go, you keep carrying one diseased person, namely yourself. Oh, it, it, it liberates you. What if God wants to spend my life? If my life's very productive or not, that's God to say, I'm just going to try, I'm going to try to honor him with my work and with my words and with my forgiveness and with my persistence. God's placed me to be husband to Kathy and father to these boys. Whatever, whatever their names are. Uh, thank you. That, again, was a joke. I know their names, Bob and Larry. God has placed me here. To love you. To try to trust him with you and in front of you. And he's placed you wherever you go out tomorrow. You're his. You're mediums of his message. You're here to make the message believable and beautiful. Now sometimes sometimes it doesn't work right. A guy in the last service told me, hey, across the street from my shop the other day, and an town that I won't tell you about, they were setting up a tent to have a revival. And the preacher, who was wearing a wife beater, which I think is at least a worthy detail for humor, (laughs) who also had a pistol on his 
hip, which is also something I stopped doing a few years ago. But as they were sitting up the tent for the revival, the preacher and his son got into a fist fight in the street. Preacher wearing a gun. My secretary, he said, I had to call the police. You get the popo there to interact, to interrupt the two men of God who were duking it out for the sake of the heavens. And I think, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Because sometimes we don't, re- we don't represent the Savior in a very attractive way, do we? Or I, I can't remember if I told you during a baseball game not too long ago that one of my assistant coaches at one point in the game, I think I had just like, fallen to my knees and started weeping, said, Hey, remember you're a preacher. And I said... Yeah, one that's saved by grace. (laughs) After which game, I had to apologize to the parents, to the kids, and to the umpires. To the umpires. But you see, it seems to me that one of the ways that we can beautify this message and make it believable, it's a message that says the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all kinds of folks. That he has saved us not because of righteous things we have done. So one of the ways that we can beautify this message is when we realize we haven't been self-controlled. When we realize that we might have brought ill repute on the word of God. Is that we can trust the grace of God enough to say, man, I just dishonored Jesus in a heinous fashion. I'm sorry. That's not how I should have been. I know, it was baseball, it was important. It was life and death. But still, there was no reason for me to have acted that way. See, that's part of the resources that we have as we realize that we're to make this message beautiful and believable by by realizing we're not our own, that we're reflecting another life as a witness, as a living reality and depiction of God in us. But sometimes we fail that abysmally, and then we can also make God's grace very believable, very enticing to others by owning up to our own sins. There's a story where a prodigal son comes home to his father who is described as a staunch Presbyterian as if there were any other sort. The father's name is John. His son's name is Jack. And John gets really angry at his son, and he apologizes to him, this Presbyterian minister, and he says, I was cross with you. That that means man. And Jack says to his dad, I had it coming. I had it coming. And the father says, I promised myself a thousand times, if you ever came home, you would never hear a word of rebuke from me ever, no matter what. And this prodigal son, Jack, grown man, has caused his parents so many sleepless nights, said, I don't mind, I deserve the rebuke. And his father said, you ought to let the Lord decide what you deserve. You think about that too much, what you deserve. I believe that is part of the problem. And the boy says, I believe you may have a point. And his dad says, nobody deserves Anything good or bad, it's all grace. 
if you accepted that, you might be able to relax a little. See, God doesn't need our good works, said Martin Luther, but our neighbor does. He has purified us so that we would be a people eager to do what's good, eager to care for the poor, like the Apostle Paul said he was, eager to care for kids that nobody else wants, eager to be in places that other people have abandoned, eager to see God renovating and putting back together things that have fallen down. We're eager to do those things, but with no pressure. Because we have received the grace of God that has purified us, not because of righteous things we have done. So we can say things like Miller Bostrom says, I think God must have had a lot of fun making my hair. (laughs) If Miller is here, you need to see her hair. It's awesome hair. It has lots of springy curls and happiness in it. And she recognized there's a playfulness. God likes us. That's why he saved us. And now we can show the world his liking. And all the things that we do. Brennan Manning wrote a biography not too long ago. He was a man, a priest, got married, divorced, lifelong trouble with alcoholism. He spoke about... His superior in the monastery that had the most effect on him, Brother Dominique Vuillamame. I have no idea what his last name is. I mean, I know how to spell it, but I don't know how to say it. And I can't read my writing. But he speaks about this man who got transferred. He, he was dying. He was, he was aging. He was dying. He asked to be moved from the town he was in France to Paris near some family and friends. He took a job as a night shift watchman, where he worked from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning. And in the mornings, he would walk in the local park where all the riffraff was, with the winos and the, the losers, the, the homeless people, the people that were discarded for one reason or another. And he traded his, his monasterial habit for a new one, of handing out candy to these people in the park, listening to their stories, befriending them, letting himself be influenced by them. And when he would leave them, he said this. It became an anthem for Brennan Manning, if you've ever read any of his books or heard him speak. He would say to them, Jesus Christ is crazy about you. And he loves you just as you are, not as you should be. He would say this with confidence to people who could surely not believe it, just like most of us can't, that the grace of God has appeared to all men. To bring salvation, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. That Jesus Christ is crazy about you and he loves you just as you are, not as you should be. And he's never going to leave us as we are. But he finds us and loves us through as we are now. We can bear witness to that with our words, with our work, with our repentance, with our attitudes to make it believable and beautiful to a world who is thirsty for that kind of grace on tap. Let's pray and pull out your bulletin.